0: Please Stand Clear of the Doors.
1: All who come to this happy place, welcome. Por favor, manténganse alejado de las puertas.
2: Hello, and welcome to Please Stand Clear of the Doors. I am your host, Stevie, and as always, joining me, Pappy, how are you tonight?
3: I'm doing great, Stevie. A little bit better than you.
2: Yeah, I feel a little under the weather, which, has anyone ever said above the weather for feeling good?
3: I feel above the weather right now.
2: That's awesome. But I
3: might be the first person to say that. Yeah. (laughs) I've never heard that before. No one's
2: (laughs) like, above the weather just died, if anybody's ever said that. But today, what are we discussing, Pappy?
3: We're here to talk about the Nine Old Men. And Stevie, what did you know about the Nine Old Men before we did our little research project?
2: Absolutely nothing. I didn't know that these Nine Old Men even existed.
3: I had heard some of the names, but it was all pretty new to me uh, as well. And so this is our second history episode where we do a deep dive into something about Disney history. And it kind of made sense to talk about them. Uh, just because they were so influential in the movies and shows and stuff that we're talking about in this early part of the company's history.
2: And uh, where does the term nine old men even come from?
3: So it was bestowed by Walt, I think sometime in the 1950s and it was based on a nickname for the Supreme Court at the time. And they were a group of nine hires who he considered his most trusted animators. And he dubbed them the nine old men, which was kind of weird, too, because they were only like in their mid 40s at the time. They weren't even that old. But yeah, they basically came to influence every part of the Walt Disney Corporation. Um, I think we actually have a clip here. The more and more that you can become that character, the more you feel like that character, the better your animation will be. An animator is an actor. He gets a scene. He has to act it out on paper.
1: For most of their careers, they were known as the Nine Old Men. It was Walt Disney's nickname for the most talented of his animation staff. Four of the Nine Old Men were in Orlando for the dedication of Disney Studios Florida. More than anything else, the presence of Ward Kimball, Mark Davis, Frank Thomas, and Ollie Johnston made the opening official.
4: We were influenced by a guy named Disney. I mean, Walt, he acted and he... uh, was a great storyteller and you have to have somebody like that who's kind of uh, has the vision of what you're trying to do. Those two guys at the end,
2: uh we'll get to it later, but there is no school like the old school.
3: Mhm.
2: <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that in a little bit cuz those guys are the best of friends, but <clears throat> well I did, we discussed this earlier, but where did Walt Disney's he had a little money before getting into animation and um did you know this about his father?
3: That he owned a jelly factory? I had
2: no idea he owned a jelly factory.
3: Well, they had mentioned like in part of the financing for Snow White that they had risked the family fortune, which so I assume that he came from some kind of money, but I didn't know it was a jelly factory Disney j- jelly. I didn't know it was a jelly yeah, factory I no either.
2: Idea. I didn't know he like dropped out of high school, joined the army, and then all this happened. I had no idea about that pre like Walt story
3: right yeah so this so if we're going back in time a little bit after snow white like all of these hires took place between 1927 and 1935 so it was really during that period of after he had started to or he left universal and was starting to develop these uh original characters and then we talked about how the hiring really geared up when he was getting ready for snow white so a lot of these guys were in their mid-20s um yeah, Les Clark, the first guy was really early in 1927, but most of them were in the mid 30s, and pretty much all of them went on to work on Snow White and then kind of worked their way up the corporate ladder. Um, Do you find any kind of similarities between the ones you did research on? We uh, we split them down the middle, so Stevie took half of them and I took half of them.
2: Um, <clears throat> you're probably better at connecting dots than I am. Like outside of like Frank Thomas's and Ali's friendship. These guys are at least they, the ones I did are far far different from one another. Like some of them came from money, some of them were dirt poor, some of them had a brilliant education, some of them didn't. It just they kind of they were very spread across the board. How about you?
3: Yeah, I, a lot of them I think like were taking a chance. They were all super young when they came to Disney, and a lot of them had a lot to learn. Kind of like you said, some of mine had our education, some of them didn't, some of them went on to take on bigger roles than others. Um, And I guess I also sort of have the question here of why these nine were considered the nine old men, and that's kind of an interesting story. Uh, Well, for one, none of these guys walked out during an animation strike that took place during the 40s, so I think it was part of that, like, loyalty thing from Walt.
2: These are the guys that Walt could trust with his animated life.
3: Basically, yeah, (laughs) and then... You might wonder, like, why was Fred Moore not included? And I think we talked about Fred Moore a little bit on the Mickey episode, but he's one of the most influential animators in the history of Disney. I think um, he's
2: the backbone of all animation in Disney.
3: He basically helped create Mickey Mouse. Uh, he was the supervising animator on Snow White, and he was a mentor to a lot of these guys. Like, we'll hear Ollie Johnson talk about how important uh, Fred Moore was to his career, but unfortunately, Fred Moore had some problems. <laughs> He was an alcoholic, and actually was fired by Disney. Then rehired later, and that really just set his career back. He ended up reporting uh, to a lot of the nine old men later on in his career, like the guys he had mentored. Mm-hmm. And his career just didn't last that long. Um, no, he passed away in 1952, so that's probably why he's left off of the nine old men conversation.
2: I think so too. Um, like you said, it's his story is like the sadder out of the like the people that could eventually what could have been like the ten or eleven old men. Mm -hmm. Like, his story went dark. And also, um, in a lot of these stories and chapters we were reading, it sounds like Disney was an insanely chaotic place to work. Oh, yeah. Like, these guys were putting in 10 to 12-hour days, then going into night animation school, or just furthering their education even more. Um, They were working in pools with each other. Some were better than others. Um, I wouldn't say it was cutthroat, but... You could definitely tell there was undermining even amongst the nine, which there's a clear Mm -hmm. example we'll get to in a little while, but it just seemed like a really hands-on deck place to work at all times, and that would be insanely difficult mentally.
3: So we have one more clip here. This is actually from uh, the Peter Pan DVD uh, release, and it's from Frank Thompson's son, Ted, and it's a documentary called Growing Up with the Nine Old Men, um, based on their families. And we'll jump into the uh, reviews themselves, or sorry, the uh, Nine Old Men themselves. So let's go ahead and hit play on that clip. I kind of got
5: started was the
6: idea of, you know, I get, keep being asked again and again when I do interviews about, how charmed my childhood must have been, you know, and what well, wasn't it magical? And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> during the '50s, Dad would have us come out with Mom,
6: oh, a couple times during the summer and have lunch with him. And then he take us around and show us what he was working on. You come in on the weekend, and you walk up those big stairs, of the animation building, the big aluminum frame doors, and you look down the hall, shiny linoleum. Mm-hmm. Shiny linoleum. linoleum.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: Long <laughs> hallways filled with lots of pictures
7: from all the films.
0: And I remember packing a little lunch and going with him, uh, and I would find a place under the movieola with my little sketch pad. I remember going to the studio with dad and sitting at a neighboring office with the the board in front of me, and I get the paper out and put it in, and I get the pencil,
2: and I thought something was going to happen. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing
0: happened.
6: You know the rubber bands at the studio? Mm. You put a whole bunch of them together and put them between two doors. She had a slingshot down the hall. (laughs) In those days, there were metal cars. No plastic cards. The goal was to try and get it to the end, whether it was on its wheels or not, and smack into the end of the door. So I go down, smacks, door opens, and there's Walt Disney. <laughs> <laughs> he walks in. Hello. <laughs> okay.
3: that's.
2: Ollie's kid is a spitting image of him.
3: It's pretty funny. <laughs> but let's get into who the nine actually were. So we have them broken down in order of first hired to last hired. So, Stevie, you got the first guy.
2: We have Les Clark, who looks oddly kind of like a young Disney.
3: He looks a lot like Disney. He's got the wavy hair, got the stash. That the had nose. to do
2: something. Like they had to do something with the hire. I'm not saying he wasn't talented, but Walt was probably like, "This kid looks just like me."
6: Les, I like your look, huh? <laughs> Welcome
2: to the team. <laughs> but Les Clark, like you said, uh, was the first hired. Uh, he was hired in 1927. This is about a decade. 11 years before Snow White was released to the country.
3: Before the first Mickey Mouse cartoon even came out. Yeah, this so is... he's uh, way early.
2: Yeah, this is pre-Steamboat. Mm-hmm. And um, he uh, grew up in Venice, went to high school in Venice, uh, which is just a few uh, miles away from where the Disney studio was at this time in Hollywood. And the, what I found interesting with him is he was not interested in art at all in this point in his life. I mean... He didn't also really seem too concerned with academics either. Uh, He worked at a candy store uh, after high school, and it was kind of a by chance thing that Walt Disney came into the candy shop and he saw Les painting a mirror, and he was extremely impressed with his work. And so after uh, high school graduation, Les went and asked Walt Disney for a job, and Walt kind of sent him out saying, go do some drawings, come back and let me see what you got. And when he came back, Walt hired him on the spot. And uh, his talent for drawing got him the job with Disney, but he didn't begin drawing for a while. Uh, He was placed in charge of operating cameras, which, Pappy, you got to admit, this just seems like the most, I I mean, just mind-numbing job in the world. Yeah.
3: I mean, that's the case with a lot of these nine. They all kind of started with the bottom, but most of them at least started as, like, (laughs) in-betweeners. So, this guy was just literally, like, moving cameras (laughs) between the frames. I mean,
2: he really was the first of the nine. Like, he started really at ground zero of Disney animation. And so, what I also thought was cool was after working for a camera, uh, just, like, placing pictures and working the camera to making sure the shots were lining up, uh, he began to work with who, Pap?
3: Ub Iwerks?
2: of Iwerks as an
3: in-betweener.
2: And for those of, I mean, I didn't know what an in-betweener was either. What an in-betweener was, you'd have your main artist that would draw like the main pictures in like main range of motion. And the in-betweeners were the people who had to do like the fill in the blank scenes.
3: Not the most exciting work.
2: That sounds hard.
3: It sounds hard, and it sounds boring, and it sounds like you don't have a lot of creative control over what you're doing.
2: Right, and Ub, uh, I mean, he was pretty much uh, Disney's right-hand man at this point. He took Les under his wing, and Les actually worked a lot and did a ton of in-between work for Steamboat Willie. And, I mean, naturally, Ub took a like liking to him. Uh, he was working on silly symphonies. And what I didn't know was, did you know that Ub Irox had a falling out with Walt?
3: Uh, I did not know, but I did kind of wonder where he went. He kind of disappeared. We he talked about him in an earlier
2: episode, and we never heard from Ub again.
3: <laughs> and, so he leaves Disney, right? He kind of left the company? Yeah, he thought he wasn't fired. getting enough
2: credit. Um, He thought too much of the emphasis was being placed on Walt. Uh, Ub seems kind of one of those guys that worked tirelessly. Not saying that Walt didn't, but... Ub feel like felt like he did not have uh, he was not getting enough recognition, what he thought he should be getting. And this is scary at a time because Mickey Mouse had no animator. <sighs> I mean this is scary. I mean Mickey Mouse is the face of the company and we have no animator.
3: Because Ub left and he was the guy in charge. He
2: was the guy. And so who was placed in charge of Mickey? Our good man, Les Clark, became a chief animator, and his first uh, film doing that for Mickey was uh, The Firefighters. Did you ever see this?
3: I did not, no.
2: No, neither did I. But, um, <laughs> what I, I mean, let's be honest. It's, it's not Steamboat Willie, and it's not Fantasia. And that's pretty much the Mickey Mouse, I guess, say upper echelon of where he started. But um, I didn't realize how responsible he was for kind of putting a lot of work into Mickey Mouse and making him look more modern.
3: Well, Mickey Mouse is, like, the flagship property, and to, like, go from 1927 just moving the camera to, like, being in charge of animating him just three years later, that's pretty crazy. That's a meteoric rise.
2: Yeah, and especially from, like we said, like, a lot of these guys went to college further their education. Les didn't. Uh, he was legitimately just working in a candy shop and out of high school, went working for Disney. So you have to imagine how talented this guy is to rise this quickly um he went on to be the animation director for fun and fancy free um what else did lester do here i didn't realize this but i also didn't realize this a lot about a lot of the nine uh less when he retired was the longest uh employed person by disney in 1975 which is sad because he outlived walt but um As I said, he served for 48 years, passed away on September 12th, 1979, four years after his last drawing. And uh, we have a clip to play because he was the Mickey master.
3: Les Clark was the first of the nine old men to sign on at Disney. Les was in
0: high school. And he worked in a candy store near the old Hyperion. Does Jim studio. Fanning
2: look like he would, a, a uh, Disney character? The menu, basically. Walt complimented him on his lettering. So when Les graduated from high school in 1928, just like Les. he asked Walt if he could have a job as an artist. And Walt said, "Well, bring your drawings by." And Les put some drawings together and came by. And Walt said, "Okay, you're hired." And he graduated high school on a Thursday. He started. At the Disney Studios on that following Monday, and he was still there in the 70s. That's
5: Les crazy. was right there
2: at the dawn of Mickey Master. Gotta have some cojones and to do that. To
5: what a break. What I always admired about Les's work on Mickey and other characters is the way he would use clothing. When you look at his scenes from The Sorcerer's Apprentice in Fantasia, his Mickey animation, Mickey's wearing this big coat, big hat, you know, big coat, loose. So the way he created these folds is unlike any other animator would have done. He really analyzed that. And you could do it in a really simple way, but he got really involved and wanted to show that this coat is heavy, that it's sitting on this little Mickey body, but it has the right amount of weight, and that the folds are creating the right type of follow-through. So his analysis of clothing is just amazing.
2: All right. All right. What I found really cool about Les is, like, today we live in a very stay-in-your-lane society, don't you think? Yeah. Like, not a lot of people taking, like, chances like this. And it just shows you, like, how talented Les truly was.
3: So that clip was from uh, Disney D23, who released, uh, I think for gold members last year, released a special box containing some information. So we'll have some clips from from that series. And we also have some clips from a... Uh, documentary series from the 80s called disney family album uh which ran from 84 to 86 and did a spotlight on each of the nine old men but so that was les clark the first of the nine now i move on to eric larson who was the second of the nine and he really added a human touch to uh to the nine old men so like i said we were he was the second hired in 1933 so six years after les clark um uh, after that Mickey mouse period too. Um, and he was born in Utah where he attended the university of Utah and majored in journalism. Uh, he did some cartoon drawing, but he was more interested in journalism itself. Uh, so when the depression hit, uh, he made his way from Utah to LA and started working as a writer in a radio station. And he did some uh, animations during his spare time. Uh, and a friend saw or saw some of his sketches and animations and told him to go to Walt, where he was pretty much hired on the spa- spot. And uh, when he joined Disney, he was mentored under Hamilton Luke and quickly was promoted to assistant animator from Inbetweener. So, again, we have another one of the uh, animators starting off in their 20s, starting out as an Inbetweener, then getting promoted right away. Uh, he then got picked to work on Disney's Folly quote-unquote, uh, Snow White as a full-time <laughs> animator. And he uh, did many of the animals during the Whistle While You Work sequence.
2: And let's be honest, there was a lot of animals in Snow White.
3: And that's a really great part of the movie, too. Like, you have the chipmunks and the squirrels. That's a really memorable sequence that he put a lot of personality to into each one. Um... And so he would kind of go on to have like small animals be a specialty. You'll see this a lot too. like some of the nine old men would have like these specific niches that they would work in a lot. So his next project was Figaro the cat and Pinocchio, uh, which he called his uh, fondest accomplishment. But he also did a lot of other uh, animals as well, and this will be the case for all of the nine old men. We'll only be able to list some of the things that they did, but they were basically involved in everything through the name 60s. a
2: Disney classic, and a lot of like pretty much these nine took a part in it.
3: Exactly, yeah. One of them was involved in some way, but he did like the baby animals in Dumbo. Uh, he was heavily involved in Thumper and Bambi, uh, a lot of the dogs in One Hundred and One Dalmatians, uh, some of the barn animals in Mary Poppins. And, uh, he also did a couple, um, the pastoral symphony in Fantasia. That's the one with like the centaurs. (laughs) It's not the best part of Fantasia. Yeah. But he did that. Um, but in 1973, uh, kind of his responsibilities shifted and he wasn't really drawing anymore, but he was still a really important part of the company and Eric, uh, Larson, ended up taking on more of a role of recruiting talent and serving as a mentor. So we have a clip now from that Disney Family series we can play. Eric
1: Larson has spent a lifetime bringing life to drawings. For these young artists, he's the key that unlocks the secrets to 50 years of Disney animation. Eric was the person
2: that I first met when I applied for a job here. And Eric, to me, is just the answer to everything. And he can
6: help you with your drawing or he can help you with why you can't work that day. You have artist block. Eric, I can't draw. I haven't been able to draw for a week.
2: And somehow he has a way of working you out of it. Um, basically, whenever I
0: I need help with anything, I come here.
2: He always reminds me
4: of just the fundamental things that I tend to forget. You know, it's like animation's so complex and how many drawings are in there and stuff.
2: But Eric always comes back to like what... Does the audience perceive?
7: The fact that he stayed here, all these, he doesn't need to be here, but it's his love for what the medium can be. And, you know, and what he sees in in us, as people, and what he
1: can give us, that keeps him around. Working with the younger animators has been a great lift. It's It's part of the studio. And to see a new staff developed, and they are developing fast. We've got some wonderful young people coming along. This has to be a source of satisfaction and uh there's something about young people that helps to keep you young or helps to keep me young even though i don't don't look it <laughs> but the spirit is there okay.
3: that's good but yeah this sounds
1: so like a dude who two, loved
2: his job
3: he loved his job he loved working for disney and that's what a lot of the nine old men like not only do they have this legacy with like develop like literally developing animation styles and rules that are still followed but like developing the corporate culture within Disney especially after Disney passed away so Eric uh, unfortunately passed away in 1988 uh, but he has one of the longest tenures of any of the nine he didn't retire until 1986 after working with Disney for 53 years
2: good lord
3: (laughs) Yeah, I have one more one more quick clip from Eric where he's talking about uh, designing Figaro here in
1: Pinocchio Eric lent his unique charm to another family. Well, for the most part, I was uh, developing Figaro. He was, say, a three- or four-year-old kid that had a mind of his own. Cleo was a nice little sister. Figaro didn't want to have anything to do with, so you had a a nice typical family play, perhaps. But Geppetto had, had them around because they were part of his life. Good night, Cleo
3: my little water baby my little water baby <laughs> <laughs> all right we should probably pause that before Walt gets too mad but yeah that's eric eric larson uh seems like a really good guy um so now let's go on to the third of the nine we talked about les clark talked about eric larson now we go on to wolfgang aka woolly Ritherman um so he was hired in 1934, right after Eric Larson. Um But interestingly, he was actually born in Germany in 1909, and then he immigrated to the United States, uh, to Kansas City, and coincidentally lived right around the corner from Roy Disney when he lived there. Um, in his teens, though, he moved to California, where he wanted to be part of the aviation industry. He was really interested in flying a plane. And even at, there's a lot of stories at that time, he didn't need a pilot's license. So, he actually had a <laughs> couple of friends who, who who died in plane crashes. He's like, yeah, that shook me up a little bit, but I still wanted to be a pilot. <laughs> and uh, he got into technical drawing and that, that was kind of his passion. Um, so, he was doing these technical drawings for some aviation companies, but in 1932... He decided to quit and re-enroll in art school and decided he wanted to be a watercolor uh, painting expert. Um, but then there was a recruiting animator at that school who was so fond of Woolley's work that he arranged a meeting with Walt and Woolley, uh, who Walt saw the talent right away in Wolfgang and offered him a job. Um which, you know, Walt was in full ramp up mode at that point, really hiring people. But Wolfgang wasn't <laughs> unsure. He's like, uh, I don't know. I don't know if this is like really what I'm into about animation. And Walt's just like, well, just try it for a few weeks and see what you think. <laughs> and it ended up being like literally the best decision he ever made in his life. He fell in love with animation right away. And his first project, which we have a little clip of, was a silly symphony called The Funny Little Bunnies, an Easter silly symphony. Let's play a little bit of that now.
2: It's like Hank Aaron not wanting to swing a bat.
3: <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah. So, lots of little critters in this. Yeah. Ideal setting. Birds, bunnies.
2: This looks really neat. Mm,
3: the animation, the detail, the color is great.
2: Even the shadow work is incredible.
3: Mm -hmm. Now we got a scene of bunnies making Easter candy at the other composite there. But I
2: would advise any Disney lover to watch that. It's really cool.
3: Yeah, so that that's called the Funny Little Bunnies. It's one of the more famous silly symphonies, and that was really successful. So then he got promoted. Again, we see this sort of progression of a career path with these guys. So he got promoted to working on one of the you know main uh, characters, Goofy. In Hawaiian Holiday, he got to do the animation for him while he was surfing, and then uh, he was brought in to work on Snow White, uh, which was the you know the marquee project at the time. And his job was the magic mirror in Snow White. So, anytime you see the magic mirror talking to the evil queen, that's uh, Wolfgang Reitherman's work there. Um, he also had another scene uh, which was cut which we'll talk about uh, again a couple times, you know, Walt Disney's editing strategy for Snow White was super aggressive. A couple of these guys had scenes cut and weren't too happy about it, but <laughs> Walt appreciated the work that he did. And so he was one of the first animators picked for Pinocchio uh, where he was put in charge of the whole monstrous sequence. So from that point on, that really cemented him as one of the top animators in the company and especially for actions, uh, sequences. So, anytime in those early Disney movies where there's a chase or a fight scene, uh, Wooly Reitherman was heavily involved in that, including in Fantasia, where the dinosaurs fight. And that's Wooly Reitherman. So, he was like the first person ever to animate dinosaurs, uh, which is kind of crazy. Uh, but World War II broke out, and the this German This happens with immigrant, a lot of these guys. Yeah, the German immigrant left Disney to go fight for the United States as a fighter pilot. Uh, he met his wife during that time and returned to work for Disney a few years later where he was given his job immediately back. And then from that point on, he worked on every single feature film, uh, for the next 12 years of the company, uh, in 1961. So shortly before Walt's passing, uh, he was promoted to chief animation director. So he's the head of the whole studio pretty much now at this point. Um, and his influences fell everywhere, not just on the animation sequences. He was a big part of deciding what animals would play what parts. So, casting the animals <laughs> in Robin Hood. Uh, he had the idea of bringing in Louis Prima for the orangutan gags in Jungle Book, and his son, uh, provided the voice of Mowgli in that movie. So, pretty interesting wow. there. Um, yeah. But what he's, uh, most important and what Wooly Reitherman's probably biggest con- contribution to Disney was, was for being the glue and keeping the sort of the plane flying once Walt passed away in 66. Uh, it was his leadership and his vision of the studio that kind of kept everyone together. And the studio really had to sort of shift focus from being a one man's leadership to more of a collaboration. And without Wooly Reitherman, the, you know, the, the studio could have really fallen apart um so he uh kept leading the studio till he retired in 1981 after producing the fox and the hound and unfortunately he passed away shortly after that that's another sort of unfortunate pattern we'll see with a lot of the nine old men as they passed away right after they retired but he passed away in a car crash in 1985 and was buried in notre dame de paris in paris france so let's play a little clip good pronunciation Uh, there Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I saw the movie six times in years.
1: (laughs) For the decade following Disney's death, Wooly's strength held everything together. There was no replacement for Walt. And uh, in my view, the the main thing was uh, to keep this team together and keep the same creative juices flowing that they had with Walt. And uh, I always had little meetings so that those animators who were the who were the key to producing any any picture so that those guys were in on the decisions and it wasn't a fearless leader type of, of thing by any means and you got an awful lot of good input and when it finally got got a little solidified they felt they were they were part of the creative process instead of dumping it out there and saying, "Look, do it."
3: Okay, that's good. What I love about Wooly too is, like, in his episode of the uh, Disney Family album, all of them are a little bit different, and you kind of like get a little personality of how the episode's structured with him. Yeah, uh, he's got this ginormous, ginormous stogie in all <laughs> of the scenes <laughs> that he's constantly smoking, but he's just got this like calm. Demeanor, And you can see why he would have been the one to take over after Walt passed away. It makes a lot of sense. Um, But yeah, that's Wooly Reitherman.
2: What I thought was really cool about Wooly is he said it was a very collaborative effort, not kind of like a one-man show. And Wooly, Mm -hmm. you could just tell he was so talented, easily could have said, this is my show now.
3: Oh, yeah, definitely. And
2: he didn't. I mean, it, it just seemed like, I mean, obviously people get in arguments here and there, but it seemed like these nine were really close and held together by a common goal, which was to be the best at their craft.
3: And you look at it too, once the Nine started to retire, unfortunately, the, you know, the animation quality kind of suffered a little bit. You see his last film here being 1981's The Fox and the Hound. Like Cry every time. That's the end. Yeah, that's the end of the Silver Age, if you even consider that the Silver Age. And after that, you get into a lot of the darker... <laughs> Uh, Disney times, but (laughs) he was integral in like keeping the quality at a high standard throughout the sixties and seventies and then into the eighties after he retired. So interesting guy, Wolfgang, Woolley Reitherman.
2: Next, we have the fourth hired in 1934. Uh, this is one of my favorite guys, Frank Thomas. Uh, He's awesome. He is so cool. (laughs) But what's interesting about him and sorry if I'm sniffling or my coughing's annoying you. I'm just very under the weather. I'm even taking tomorrow off. So I will get better shortly. But um, what's interesting with him was he was the first California native among the old men. A lot of these guys like made their way to the California area. He was the first one like immediately dropped in it. And um, from a very young age, this wasn't a situation where like, oh, I'm kind of good at art. But I'm focusing on other things. He knew he wanted to be an artist. Like this also was
3: unusual for these guys. A lot of them didn't know Yeah, a
2: lot of these guys, maybe, I mean, more than half of them didn't have a lot of interest in art growing up, and he did. He had a very good knack for it, and um, he was the son of the president of uh, Fresno State University at the time, which he also attended. Uh, He would attend USC during the summers. I don't hold Hold that against him. We're huge Notre Dame fans here, but that is what that Mm -hmm. is. Uh, he also uh, got into making like short films and producer short films while uh going to school at um USC and then something really important happened which I think it shaped like two for for certain two out of these nine which was he transferred from Fresno State to Stanford for the last two years of his education and he got involved with um it's a Stanford kind of like humorous publication. I guess you could almost say it's like the onion when you say pap. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, yeah. This was yeah. called, I mean, it was nicknamed uh, Chappie or The Chappie. And Nathaniel
3: Blomkamp movie. Yeah. Something else.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Not that one. And why I thought this was so important was another member of the nine was also attending Stanford at this time, and that was Ollie Johnston. And. What I thought was so neat about this was... This is the way I took it. was Frank and Ollie formed a lifeline. I think they were best friends, wouldn't you say?
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, that constantly comes back to that they were the the two who were kind of paired off and friends and, yeah, these two and worked were, together a lot.
2: Yeah, just the ones that were always together. Uh, but they had different animation styles, which we'll get to in a little while, especially speaking with Ollie. Uh, Frank was one who would kind of... I don't think I mixed this up, but would kind of take chances and experiment where Ollie was kind of more straight laced animator. But, um, mm-hmm. he would, uh, he was a very talented animator, but he had a lot of self doubt. Uh, he was kind of one of those guys that just never thought he was good enough, which was perfect for working at Disney because all these guys started very rough around the edges but became masters in their profession, which was perfect for Frank because he never thought he was good enough. And, um, he was hired by Disney and uh what was so cool was um he was hired as a as an animator and like many of these men started as a lowly in what sounds like monotonous work in betweener.
3: In betweener again.
2: Yeah, just the good old in betweener. And he was mentored by here's his name again, uh Fred Moore. And this is a little tidbit in this chapter I thought was hilarious. George Drake, did George Drake come up in any of your chapters, Pap?
3: Uh, I don't think so, no.
2: So, there were multiple levels in the animation. I guess you could say like the animation work. You, know, you had your in-betweeners. You kind of had your guys that would finish other drawings off. You had kind of your master artists and your starters. And George George Drake <coughs> was the supervisor of the in-betweeners and the junior artists. And he absolutely hated Frank. And what was so hilarious <laughs> about this was the old, a lot of the animators – the only reason George Drake, and if you're related to George Drake, I'm sorry. This is what was in the book. Uh, The only reason George had this job was because he was married to the director of Snow White's sister.
3: Nepotism.
2: So this is a very situation was, (laughs) it sounds like, hey, Walt, my brother-in-law needs a job. What can you give him? (laughs) And um, Drake constantly wanted to find a way to fire Frank Thomas. He constantly added in for him and fred moore kind of taking frank under his wing made it impossible for uh george drake to fire him so i thought that was pretty neat of fred moore just to say hey i'll look after you you know you have nothing to worry about
3: it's tough to underestimate how important fred moore
2: is the backbone yeah. he sa- i mean he saved this man's job in my mind
3: but I think we have a little clip here of uh, Frank Thomas talking about working on Snow White. Yeah, Frank too animated a
1: walk in Snow White, a walk Walt Disney took and ran with. The first sequence
7: I had of any importance was where she was sending him out to wash. He their was hands. the guy. He was in that the story, guy. <laughs> uh, preparation for this, they had Dopey go the wrong way, and as he turned and came back, he was out of step, so he did a little hip step to catch up. That's why I did the hitch step. Turned out all right and Walt said, hey, that's a good trait for Dopey. Let's have him every time he's walking anywhere, he has to do a hitch step to keep up. Well within like two days I had every animator in the place coming in and said, oh, it was God. your lousy hitch step that ruined my scene. I had that scene okayed for ink. That was all finished a month ago. And now I gotta pull back and put in a hitch step. <laughs> you not my fault. It was in the story. Oh, hi, oh, hi,
3: oh. So two things about that. One, he just seems like the sweetest man he in the history so of the world. He so nice. <laughs> And two, we talked about this on our Opening the Vault episode, our first one of Snow White, but he was the animator who came up with the idea to put the hitch step in and made everyone have to go back and redo their work. So he already <laughs> had George Drake, who wanted him fired, and then he had all the other animators angry with him. <laughs> it's a wonder he survived to be one of the nine. And you
2: know George Drake was leading that charge. Oh, yeah. He was just, well, you see what this guy did? Fire him. A <laughs> oh, uh, hitch step. Can you believe that? I love that <laughs> the hitch episode is so awesome. That Frank, it was just Frank's idea. But um, after the success of Snow White, Frank was personally chosen by Snow White to work on Fantasia as well as Dumbo. And like many of these artists, World War II broke out, and Frank was drafted into World War II and ended up in the Air Force. But it was kind of odd the part he played. Uh, he wasn't, you know, flying planes like Wooly. He was actually drafted in the United States Air Force. I imagine um, it was pretty much the motion picture unit for the United States Air Force. They made propaganda films for the war effort, and they worked on a lot of uh, WB. And after hmm. being discharged and disbanded in the December of 1945, Frank, pretty much like a lot of these guys, went, went right back and worked for Disney. So I was going to bring this up too. Disney – in your mind, like I think Disney was a great boss. Wouldn't you say so?
3: He seems to be, yeah. And and throughout, like reading the chapters and watching these clips, like none of the guys have anything bad to say about Disney. He always took them back with open arms after going to war, um, which which is what an employer should do. But he didn't hesitate because these are one of the premier jobs in the country, and they all just like gush about how how much training he provided them and how integral he was in their development. Like, I don't know about you. I kind of get the feeling that Walt Disney was like the coach or the dad who everyone was trying to impress. You know what I mean? And like, everyone's, like, Hey, look at this, look at this. You know what I mean? Like they're all kind of vying for his approval. That's right. Kind of the it, sense. I get, yeah, I
2: brought this up earlier. Undermining did happen, but, um, Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's cutthroat and you definitely want to impress like the guy at the top. And I think he was just a great boss to work for. Cause these guys, a lot of these guys left, and they came right back. I mean, immediately just saying, I want to work for you again. So I think that is kind of a reflection of Wall himself. Um, really cool scene that Frank was in charge of was the I, – I mean, this is one of the most famous scenes in all of Disney is the spaghetti-eating scene in Lady and the Tramp. He uh, did that? He did that. Wow. I think that's so cool. Uh, he was the creator of King Louie from the Jungle Book, and uh, nice. he was also in charge of the animation for the I want to be like you sequences or this, Yeah. And uh, he also did the penguin dance of Mary Poppins. You want to watch it?
1: Yeah, we got a clip. Let's do the it. Disney animators were the best in the business and Frank credits the boss with making the best better.
7: Sweetest old man. You know, the most important thing in your life was pleasing Walt. Now, that wasn't because he was the boss or because you, you had any special relationship with him. He just had an air <laughs> about him that you wanted to please this man. There you go, yeah. The other thing, which I think was even more important, was that he drew out of you what he thought, what he believed you could do. And he made you believe it, even though you said, I don't know how to do that. What, what, how, what am I going to do? <laughs> Frank found himself asking
1: that very question while working on Mary Poppins.
7: Well, the problem we had was that <clears throat> uh, Bob Stevenson, who was doing the live action, had been told, don't worry about the animation, you movie. just get your part as good Stylus. as you can. So uh, when I'd get over on the stage, I'd say, where am I going to put my penguins? I'd say, this storyboard <laughs> isn't going to work. And, and then the, they would all follow Dick Van Dyke around uh, on the story sketches, you know. as <laughs> I'd get the film of Dick actually doing the dance. Here's his feet flying all around he's stepping on my penguins and you know you animate a penguin drawing after drawing after drawing after drawing only to have it stepped on when it gets down here <laughs> how are you going to know ahead of time where he's going to be and where dick van dyke's going to be so i was losing more penguins <laughs> every day i had them duck and i had them jump and i had them get out of the way any way they could but all of that worked walt was right but uh, it forced us to be more imaginative and we were able to come up with a result that's quite different actually from what's on the storyboard but uh, I think it works well.
3: I mean, yeah, just for him to even be able to like they were problem solving on the fly. It was kind of like, well, it's like, oh, we'll figure it out. You know what I mean? Like the, the live action guys.
2: Like, we'll take care of the live action. You just focus on the impossible.
3: Yeah, you, yeah, you've got to anticipate where all these penguins need to be and where they need to move in the frame. We'll, right. We'll
2: figure it out. And, I mean, that scene, like, I think it still looks great to this day. Like, if that was on a movie today, I'd be like, wow, that's really neat. Uh, other things he did was uh, he directed the animation of the evil stepmother and Cinderella, Uh, He's a supervising animator for the Queen of Hearts and Alice in Wonderland. He also supervised the animation of Hook and Peter Pan. Uh, He wrote books. Uh, He appeared in a documentary with his best friend, which we'll get to at the very end, uh, called Frank and Ollie. Um, His last work, I love this. And I also love because Ollie was in it too. But um, his last work was uh, a voice, voice acting for The Incredibles in 2004. Uh, sadly, he also passed away in 2004, but let's go ahead and play this clip because anyone who's seen The Incredibles will know this right away.
0: Huh? No! Hey,
7: you see that? Yeah.
3: That's the way to do it. That's old school. Yeah. No school like the old school. It's just so sweet. That's so sweet. Just best friends at the end. I'm going to be saying like the the OGs of all Disney animation (laughs) saying there's no school like the old school. It's just, oh, it just touches your heart.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's so awesome that those two got to start and finish their careers together. I think that's just awesome. Uh Let's go ahead and work our way to the next artist, which was it's your personal favorite, right?
3: I love this guy. He's just a goo ball. He
2: looks like a cartoon.
3: <laughs> His so we have like little pictures next to our show notes here, and we have one where he's We'll tweet him out. Yeah, he's imitating the cowboy face of the cowboy he's drawing, and he looks just <laughs> like him. And again, I was saying that like all of those uh documentaries kind of match the style. Like a lot of the guys are talking about the history of Disney or like what their roles were. No. When you watch Ward Campbell's uh Disney family uh journal, his is just showing off like the trains in his backyard, like all the cool toys he's collected. Like he has nothing to talk about with history. He's just like (laughs) a kid who never grow up. It's so awesome.
2: He was the fifth hired in nineteen thirty four and he was born uh, in a very special place. He was born in Minneapolis, Minnesota.
3: Woohoo! I lived there for two years.
2: Yeah, great place in 1914. Like you said, his first drawing was of a locomotive at a very young age. Um, it's kind of a sad story. Uh, we said some of these guys grew up wealthy, some of these guys grew up in rather unfortunate circumstances. And Ward Kimball was the guy that uh, grew up with rather unfortunate circumstances. His parents couldn't afford him they couldn't afford to feed him or clothe him so they sent him to live with his grandmother who uh really pushed him in his uh love for art like he knew also knew at a young age like he wanted to be an artist uh they said he grew up and went on to uh i guess you could say uh, migrate to california ended up at the santa barbara school of arts and uh one of his instructors was uh So impressed with his work, he told him, go apply for Disney. And he did, landed a job right away because Walt was hiring anyone who could find that knew how to work a pencil. Mm -hmm. And he (laughs) landed a job as an in-betweener. Again,
3: starting as an in-betweener. And again, someone's teacher who's like, oh, you know what you should do? You should go work for this Disney guy. And (laughs) are like, oh, okay. (laughs) Another teacher that saved the day. Yeah.
2: I mean, there's so many important people behind these guys. It's crazy. And uh George Drake once again popping up hated Ward Kimball. Also <laughs> tried to get him fired.
3: Come on, George Drake. What's your problem, man? <laughs> the Drake.
2: <laughs> they really need to make a movie about George Drake.
3: <laughs> don't love the Drake. <laughs>
2: no. And um I don't know if uh I don't know if I'm pronouncing this guy's as uh his mentor was – what is it? Is it Ham Luke or Ham, Ham Lusky? Um, Lusk.
3: Ham Lusk?
2: Ham Luke Maybe. Uh, ended up being uh, his mentor. And all these nine were taken under the wings of somebody. So,
3: mm-hmm.
2: I mean, they're obviously going to improve. And all these mentors saw the raw talent that they had. Uh, Ward initially drew uh, the Taurus and the Hare, which uh, won Walt Disney's third Academy Award for Best Animated Short. And this is kind of funny when we talked about Disney getting aggressive with his his cutting style. Uh, he drew the soup scene in Snow White.
3: Which we talked about on the episode, which is hilarious. And like basically all the way animated.
2: It's all the way animated. The There's color. so much work yeah. that went into this. All the voices are matched up. Like This was a process for this song. And it was cut. And Ward was just... I mean, he was furious, he was unhappy, and it was also a little, I guess, demoralizing for him, because he thought, okay, my animation just isn't good enough, then why am I here? And uh, Mm -hmm. he went into Walt's office to resign in person, like a gentleman. If anyone's going to quit their job, it better be in person. Uh, This is where (laughs) Walt kind of pulled him aside and said, listen, like, that was just for editing purposes, you're actually probably one of my best artists, artists, and he called him a genius. Like he called him, he called his animation just genius work, but reassured him he'd have more responsibility on the next most terrifying animated movie Walt made in the beginnings of his studio, which was Pinocchio. And he was in charge of the design of animation of uh, Jiminy Cricket, one of the cooler characters. And Jiminy initially looked like uh, a cockroach, according to Ward (laughs) Kimball. and a lot of them brought this up after the success of snow white i wouldn't say they got complacent but things weren't firing off as well as they should have at the be- as well as they should have at the beginning production of pinocchio
3: well it's hard you know what i mean like the, it, the, it was all hands on deck to make snow white and then after snow white they immediately start to sort of branch off into the other like golden age projects like some of them went to work on pinocchio some went to go work on fantasia some of them went to go work on bambi so they were super ambitious but i think because of that you know the degree of difficulty just went up a lot
2: yeah and also a lot of these animators spent years working on the human side of the animation of snow white which Mm -hmm. i mean pinocchio is a more i wouldn't say character caricature style but it's definitely more cartoony. And Ward was the key into making Jiminy in uh, the design is as he looks today. And uh, let's play a clip.
6: It, any of you have ever seen a cricket? They're pretty, they have sort of a triangle, big bug eyes up here. This is sort of a cartoon version, teeth longer, big thing. They're, they're sort of bullet <laughs> shaped. So this is roughly. An, how a real cricket looks. He's drawing it
3: this as he goes bad. and it's just incredible. So I down, <laughs> he's doing this on the fly. The hands in the world.
6: something that's, that'll work. He's got to be cute. He's going to he all the way through the picture and it's too gross. And I said, well, I eliminated the sawtooth legs and, and he's got, got, got a, one with a the top coat hat. on. Gotta he's going to I'll go back and make him cuter. So finally... He's just
3: drawing this on the fly. After a lot of trial
6: and error we, we started out the, the Jiminy Cricket and he really turned out to be a much more enduring character than the original what are conscience? I'll tell you a conscience is that still small voice that people won't listen to that's just the trouble (laughs) with the world today are you my conscience? who, me? (laughs)
2: animation is so cool in these
3: that's just the trouble with the world today
2: (laughs) right, before we get in trouble with Paul let's go ahead and cut there yeah but um ward is definitely a, a cool customer and like you said he can just take a, like a pencil or a pen and just start going like there's there's no effort in what he just did
3: <laughs> oh it was incredible yeah it looked like he wasn't even straining
2: after the war break after you know the war broke out he worked for the war effort from 1941 to 1945 and uh he absolutely hated doing propaganda work uh he fought it thought it was mentally limiting and just very gloomy and it kind of comes back to the the point that you made that he's just a kid that never grew up you know what I mean like he's always been a kid at heart oh yeah uh, he also went to work on uh, Fantasia Dumbo, Saludos Amigos The Three Caballeros Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan Mary Poppins a ton of stuff and uh, we have another clip to play right here
6: now I'd like to show you our firehouse. This is where we store all of our ancient fire equipment. That we use from
3: time He's to in a time costume.
6: Jazz band called the Firehouse Five Plus Two. Let's go in and take a look. This first piece of equipment is our fire chief's car, an old 1911. Two cylinder Maxwell. This always led the parade. He looks kind of like Harry
3: Carey with Mr. Magoo glasses. Yeah, he
6: looks like dopey. Now, over here is one of the earliest pictures taken of the Firehouse 5 Plus 2, made up mostly of Walt Disney artists who like music, play jazz. And here's you, yours truly as he looked playing the trombone over 30 years ago. <laughs>
3: Okay, yeah. So uh, Frank Thomas and um, Ward Kimball were in a band called the Firehouse Five, uh, mm-hmm. which was a jazz band made up a lot of Disney animators. I thought that was pretty pretty interesting.
2: For those of you who are getting mad that I didn't bring up jazz and Frank Thomas, I loathe jazz. So I'm sorry <laughs> I didn't put it in there. Uh, Ward retired from Disney in 1974 and died in 2002 in Los Angeles. We have uh, one last clip to play.
1: Disney animator <laughs> who never grew up. Kell's home is his playground. The train he designed for Walt Disney's Dumbo has a full size cousin in his own backyard. He's
3: so <laughs> animated in his motions; he's like a cartoon character in real life.
2: Loves locomotives, which, at the end, we'll talk about. This had a huge influence on Walt Disney. All right, All right that's good there.
3: All right, so time to move on to number six of the nine old men, Milt Kahl. And uh, people have called him the Michelangelo of animation. I kind of get the sense that he was maybe like... The most intense of any of them? Yeah. Like, if he was going to be taken <laughs> yeah. under your wing, he would be like the scary one <laughs> to get mentored by. He's not the one
2: you could just go start up a conversation with.
3: Not the easiest guy to approach. Um, but he, like so many of these guys, had uh, a harder life growing up. Uh, he was also born uh, – he was a first-generation German immigrant born in San Francisco in 1909. Um, Again, you have the theme where the father wasn't in the family and he had to go to work at a very young age, uh, 16. Uh, So in 1925, he began his career in newspaper art departments and he was successful and he was working his way up that corporate ladder. And then the great depression hit and he lost his job. So he then got a job at a movie theater. And I thought this job was really interesting his job at the movie theater was to basically draw, like, movie poster or movie artwork to try and get people They are worth a in. ton
2: of money today.
3: Yeah, so if you ever find any of those that say Milt Call on it, do not get rid of it. But, yeah, he was basically, like, doing this artwork to try and get, you know, Depression-era people to take their mind off what was going on and get into the movie theater. But in 1931, he caught a break and connected with a former colleague uh, who now happened to be working at Disney. And then a mere three years later, so he kind of kept in contact with this person off and on. Um, It wasn't the easiest place to get a job still, even though Walt was hiring like mad. Um, (laughs) If
2: you could hold a pencil.
3: (laughs) Yeah, which this guy didn't have any formal art training, but he was still hired by Disney in 1934. And, and because of this, like, you know, lack of college education or, or art school education, he wasn't taken seriously at first by a lot of the, the animators. Um, but he kept, you know, proving himself as an in-betweener and was eventually brought on to the big time Mickey's circus in 1936. Um, and, his work on that kind of propelled him into being on the Snow White team where he did the turtle in Snow White, which is one of my favorite parts of the whole movie. The turtle steals the whole show.
2: Oh yeah. That is one of my favorite parts of the whole movie. (laughs) It's interesting. Like you said that he had little to no formal art training, which I think says more. I mean, it just says kind of like the, uh, I mean, I know he wasn't taken seriously to begin with, But the culture around Disney was, we just want the best guys. We don't care where you came from. And he worked his way into one of the best guys.
3: Mm -hmm. And again, it's just like right time, right place with so many of these guys. So after doing the turtle on Snow White, which was such a big hit, um, he was brought in to sort of help with the development of Pinocchio. And I don't know if we've even talked about this enough that these guys aren't just responsible for like drawing the animation like A lot of it is developing, like, who the characters are and what they look like and how they act, like, within the movie. And a lot of the early concepts, like we talked about with, um, uh, let's see, Ward Kimball with Jiminy Cricket, a lot of the early concepts for Pinocchio were just too wooden and too, like, literally Mm puppet-like. And so, what Milt did was he took the approach of starting with a regular boy and then adding the puppet joints And he showed these to Ollie Johnson, who we'll talk about, who showed them to Walt Disney himself. And Walt Disney, like, sort of made the spot decision to make Milt the supervising animator of Pinocchio. So, again, you have Walt Disney making these, like, kind of snap decisions and snap promotions of these people who end up being, like, the most important animators of all time. It's kind of crazy. Oh, yeah. But so he was brought in to work on Bambi uh, to capture the realistic movements of the deer. And he really sort of led the way in this methodology of taking it slow and studying real anim like real animals movements um, before even beginning the animation process. You know, something that you see all the way even up till today in Disney. Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, I understand that these are animated. I'm not going to call them cartoons or animations, but there's just this giant leap of starting with Snow White. And like you said, slowly but steadily like steadily studying what these characters are doing
3: mm-hmm. yeah and that was all the education that walt was providing for these guys like as part of their career but yeah so after world war ii his career really took off and he became uh, famous not just as an animator but like i said like really in the creation of characters um some of the ones that he's helped uh, partially responsible uh for creating is lady and the tramp pongo the Cheshire Cat, he helped with King Louis, uh, Shere Khan, Merlin, Robin Hood, and Ka, just to name a few. So let's get a <laughs> clip of him that's talking a, about I think this is. That's Jungle a pretty
2: book. big yeah. list.
3: Oh, it's just a few too. It's yeah. crazy. Uh,
5: I'd like a word with you if you don't mind.
7: Shere Khan. What a surprise.
5: <laughs> yes, isn't it? I just dropped by. Uh, forgive me if i've interrupted anything
6: oh no no nothing at all
5: i thought perhaps you were entertaining someone up there in your coils who is it car
0: uh,
6: oh 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 no oh i was just uh, singing uh, to myself <laughs> <laughs>
0: he, he grabs him by the throat and then and then and then scratches him with his with his claw up
6: up his nose up his nostril you know and uh, this
3: it's is so Milt here talking. He's
6: being so terribly polite, sympathetic. A trust in me. <laughs> <laughs> I
5: know I can't be bothered with that. I have no time for that sort of nonsense.
6: Some other time, perhaps.
5: Perhaps.
1: <laughs> Milt's final performance was one of his best. He drew most okay, of the Adul- enough.
3: <laughs> but
2: I think Milt was more like Sheer Khan.
3: Oh yeah, he. <laughs> He he had this intensity of a scar. Let's, <laughs> let's be. So the last thing that he did for Disney was he helped create Madame Medusa uh, for The Rescuers, um, who he developed his character without a live action model. Um, and he retired from Disney in 1976 and enjoyed a nice long retirement until he passed away in 19, 1987. And in 2009, he received an honorary Academy Award. Uh, where he was dubbed the Michelangelo of animation. So we have one more little clip from him here.
2: Okay. The genius of Milt Cotton.
1: When my colleagues and myself uh, started work here at Disney, uh, honestly, we were afraid to talk to the animators. You know, they, they were so far above us. And guys like the <laughs> nine old men, you, you, you didn't you would never speak to them because they were like you know, they were like royalty. They were truly animation royalty. So
5: I think it took me a good year before I even had the courage to speak to Frank Thomas or Ollie Johnson or Milk Kahl. When you look at the model sheets that were created for the feature characters over the decades, uh, like 90% are Milt Kahl's drawings because Walt Disney knew that he was the top draftsman. He can make these <laughs> characters look 90%. just the way they Jeez. should look, like very, very polished but Milt Carl knew that, and often didn't have any patience for a bad drawing. <laughs> and more than once, an animator or an assistant would come into Milt's room and have drawings checked, and he would just throw the drawing down the hall, the whole scene, and say, we don't even draw like that around here. <laughs> and Walt Disney had an interesting way of dealing with Milt's temper, whenever Milt was upset about something, uh, he, and he would call Walt, and uh, he was in a big huff, uh, Walt didn't answer the call. He would just call him back like three or four days later. And by that time, Milt didn't even know what he was so upset about. <laughs>
3: <Milt>. Okay. <laughs> there you go. That's Milt for you. The, the intense one.
2: <laughs> I mean, imagine being the in-betweener, the cleanup guy for Milt. <laughs>
3: hey, hey, I just need you to check these drawings. We don't draw like that around here. This it, is Disney. <laughs> and Milt seems like the
2: kind of guy to me... Where he would be his own in-betweener. Like, he wouldn't have time to wait on people. He would just do it.
3: Just no patience. Yeah, I got at this.
2: <laughs> yeah. So now, I hope I'm pronouncing this right. It's a very odd last name. His name's John uh, Lounsberry.
3: Yeah, Lounsbury. It was tough to find a lot on him, actually, of all of these guys.
2: Yeah, um, very interesting guy. Uh, he's the seventh hired in 1935, uh, a year or two after most. Uh, he was born in Cincinnati, Ohio on March 9th in 1911. But he was raised in Denver, Colorado, which is hey now. where you are right now. Where I live.
3: Yeah. Yeah, where I'm sitting right now. So lots of pappy connections to the nine old men.
2: And I wouldn't call him a, a guy of circumstance, but he was lucky he grew up in a family that he did because he grew up in a family that enjoyed the outdoors, camping in the mountains, a lot of hiking. And he began to just fall in love with, I guess you could say, the look of the outdoors and nature and began to draw them heavily
3: we'll see that a lot with these guys i mean we've seen it a lot with these guys is like a lot of these a lot of their talents came from like their ability to observe the world as it was Mm -hmm. you know even if it wasn't just like straight art talent they were good at seeing things and how they moved and how they behaved and that's really what set them apart
2: yeah and kind of a sad story I mean, I wouldn't say it's why he's wise, a good artist, but he really delved into drawing and animating after the passing of his father at the age of 13. And he called Again, it. Again, another,
3: yeah, losing of the father early.
2: Yeah. And he called it a, um, his drawing and passion for animation as a way of escapism. And straight out of high school, he found a job at the railways, but eventually gave that up quite quickly and en- <laughs> enrolled at the Arts Institute of Denver. <laughs> which I think is now the Art Institute of Colorado. And after this... A couple he...
3: blocks from where I'm sitting right now.
2: Yeah. Is it really? Yeah, really. Wow, that's awesome. I'm sure there's a statue or a big picture of him somewhere in there. Uh, he moved to Los Angeles during the Great Depression and enrolled at what was called the Art Center in Los Angeles. It was a very experimentive and you could almost say like radical place to learn at this point in time. And a lot of... like. There's a lot of a famous famous alumni that come from here at the from the center. Uh, just name a few, or like the Got Milk campaign, or the design of RTD two. So that wow. kind of shows you like how talented John was to be like an amongst these people.
3: Not uh, a bad school,
2: right? But he was also a guy with a lot of formal training. I mean, it's not nothing. It's, it's not anything to, like take away from, but he had a lot of formal training. Uh, in 1935, one of his instructors and um, kind of encouraged him to go apply. To Disney as an illustrator, Walt hired him right away. Uh, I I wouldn't, say, I mean, he had a lot of formal training and he was extremely talented. I mean, John was, I mean, uh, Walt was blown away by John. And he didn't start out in the, out in the pool as an in betweener, he was uh, hired above that. So, as wow. an in betweener or someone who rose, I wouldn't say I would be ticked, but I'd be like, I would just kind of say, like, this guy better be really good. <laughs> mm-hmm. if i have george drake coming after trying to fire me uh i hope this guy is worth it uh he was hired as an assistant animator and like all the nine john was given a mentor to work under and his mentor was a guy named norman fergie ferguson and fergie is famous in Disney fergie, or... ferguson. <laughs> fergie
3: ferguson
2: fergie ferguson And I'll call him Fergie, not of the Black Eyed Peas, but Fergie's famous in Disney lore for the fact that he designed Pluto the dog, which I wish I'd known this, but it's a fact that I learned. You learn new stuff every day. I just don't study that much about Pluto. But uh, Pluto was named after the planet and not the other way around. And Fergie was also (laughs) responsible for the design of the witch in Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And... Uh, because he's his mentor, uh, Fergie took John along with him to work on Snow White. And all these nine worked on Snow White, didn't they?
3: Yeah, I think all of the nine did, in some capacity.
2: And kind of like uh, Pap said, there's not a lot on John Lansbury for the fact that he wanted to live a quiet life. I mean, he lived away from the city, lived away from Hollywood. He lived on a farm on the outskirts of Los Angeles. Um he married uh, Florence Hurd. Don't know a lot about her. Sorry if you're related to her. Uh, he was also working for another studio at the time. And after Snow White, huge success, John was chosen to work on Pinocchio. And he was responsible for the Honest John and Gideon scenes. Now, do you remember a lot about these scenes, Pat?
3: About the Honest John?
2: Yeah, kind scenes. of like when they first bump pump into Pinocchio in like town and whatnot.
3: Is that like uh, an actor's life for me? Like that type?
2: Yeah. Kind of where they take him around the arm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very unique. And it really kind of stapled that John had his own style. And John was unique in the fact that he was such a good artist, he could mimic and replicate many other animator scenes. So he could kind of help flesh out a scene and not interrupt any of the rhythm of those animations. Um. He also worked on Fantasia, drawing the alligators and hippo scenes. Uh, At this point, uh, he had no mentor. He was working independently. After his work on Fantasia, Disney himself, impressed with his work, uh, Walt hired him to be directing animator of Dumbo. And he did much of the drawings and animations and design for Dumbo, as well as Timothy the Mouse. And when the war broke out, him and Ward Kimball, along with Walt Disney in charge, worked on a project called uh, Victory Through Air Power. Now, this is, I guess, this is controversial at the time, and I guess it was also controversial uh, to this day, because this was an idea that was also supported by Brigadier Billy Mitchell. And it was the fact that they brought up that there was kind of pointless to have naval, so many naval warships in key places for the fact that aviation had come so far and like avi- aviation military power had come so far that they could just sink those ships. And everybody kind of thought Billy was crazy for this idea and he was forced out of the military. <laughs> <And> this <laughs> isn't funny. <laughs> but in 1941 on December 7th, exactly what Billy thought was going to happen happened with Pearl Harbor. And he called it. Yeah, he called it. I mean, so many years before he said, hey, listen. Like, this is a legit strategy, and no one believed him. And so, um, what was I going to say? John Kimball, as well as Dizzy, went on to work on this animated feature called uh, Victory Through Air Power. And uh, it was released in 1943, and we're going to look at a clip, or actually listen to the trailer for it right now. Ooh. Yeah, it's pretty crazy.
1: How long will the war last?
2: Well, our own this is what trailer sound like.
0: Which is our number one target? Oh, Germany. Jeez. Yeah. What of the supply problem? <laughs> can we overcome the submarine?
2: This is all <laughs> I hated. Bleak. So really? Yeah. yeah.
3: I think this is where can Ward Kimball really hated his life.
6: From
3: <laughs> Ward Kimball's like, I don't want to do this.
2: But the animation in this is pretty crazy, when you say? Air
3: power? Oh, it's gorgeous, yeah. Have a and independent Very airports? realistic. Dark colors. us
2: victory in the shortest
1: possible time with the greatest saving in human life?
2: <laughs> but we can go ahead and power. pause it there. <laughs> but the military uh, w- wasn't too thrilled with uh, Walt at this point for the fact that uh, Billy Mitchell was right and they were wrong. And that's why it was kind of controversial at the time is I was not say Walt was kind of like rubbing their nose in it, but like, Hey, like should have listened to the guy. Um, after the war and everything was settling back at Disney, uh, John went back, uh, went on to develop and animate many of the characters for Robin Hood, uh, animated and designed Captain Hook, Donald uh, also animated Donald Duck and Wendy Darling. And he went on to direct Winnie the Pooh, And Tigger, too. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know this, but his final project was uh, directing The Rescuers, which is a movie that I love. And sadly, uh, he passed away from a heart attack on February 13th, 1976. And he was actually the first of the nine to die.
3: Mm. Yeah, when, when I think John Lounsbury, he really seems like the quiet one, but he also seems like the one that almost had like... One of the most insane talents. You know what I mean? Just yeah, like a natural. I
2: think, yeah, I mean, he definitely had that that education and background for it, but it was because he was so talented that he did.
3: Mm-hmm. So let's talk about Mark Davies Davis, the eighth of the nine old men to be hired, yeah. uh, a.k.a. Disney's Renaissance Man. So he's another California native, the second of the <laughs> California natives born in 1913 but he moved around a lot he went to 22 different schools moving up or uh, growing up military kid it sounds like <laughs> he was actually like the son of an oil worker so they would go wherever oil the oil was, was. Uh, yeah i guess but so wherever he would go he would always like become a fixture in the local zoo and he would draw animals when he was there so because of this he really sort of gain that proficiency as like capturing animals how they move and how they look in real life but Again, we come back to the theme of the father's not in the life. Uh, This time, his father passed away, unfortunately, when Mark was in his teens. Mm -hmm. So he, uh, like many of the other nine, had to get a job early on. And he actually got a job as a cartoonist. So working in art, Um, he was hired by Disney in 1935. Uh, So if you do the math, he was only 22 years old when he was hired. So super young, uh, being hired in the studio. And he was part of that Snow White surge uh, that we talked about so many times. Um, <laughs> but he moved up the ranks fast. Uh, he was involved in the design of Snow White and then brought in to do the storyboards on Bambi. And uh, Walt was impressed so much that he told Frank Thomas and Milk Call to give him additional coaching. I'm sure so he Milt had those loved two. that. I'm sure he hated it. I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure Mark Davies was terrified of it, too. But uh <laughs> So yeah, had two of the nine old men as his mentors, uh, you know, mentorship, a big part of, of these guys that we talked about. Mm-hmm. And then he went on to like sort of lead the design on Thumper and the skunk sequence. And so like any of the sequences in Bambi where, the, where characters are falling in love, which happens more than you would think actually in Bambi, uh, he was sort of the lead on that. Uh, he, during the war ages, he was a part of the victory through air and, and those propaganda films, movie. um, <laughs> He was one of the lead animators on Br'er Rabbit and Song of the South. We'll leave that there. (laughs) Uh, And then his role really became sort of in these early parts, the point person as the development of female protagonists. So your Cinderella's, your Alice's, your Tinkerbell's, and probably, you know, most famously for him or most involved for him, Cruella DeVille.
2: Little tidbit about Cruella DeVille. Uh, She was the first... uh villain to have a song named after
3: i guess that makes sense yeah yep go ahead So yeah that's a big character for him but he was kind of getting tired of doing the same thing over and over again uh but he got a new opportunity uh the world's fair was going on and disney had recently built his parks and so there was a need to sort of develop some animatronics which he got involved in so let's play a clip of this
1: 1964 New York World's Fair Mark now found himself Designing cavemen A time traveling family (laughs) The children of the world I love these And our 16th president
0: All in three dimensions This was limited in that uh, uh, The the hall of presidents uh, Oh I love the hall Characters with their feet nailed to the floor practically So you had to do You had to figure out something for them to do That was believable
3: Walt kind of like a, Carl from Up.
0: Thank you for Abraham saying that. Was just like Carl. Listens. I believe I remember him saying that even as a youngster, he had portrayed Abraham Lincoln in, at a school on a Lincoln birthday or something of the sort. So, uh, Walton asked me to give it some thought, and I did uh, a number of things of how how simple things work in anatomy, how perhaps a mechanical hand could work. This was rather naive in thinking because really our problem was not to create a mechanical man, but it was rather to create an illusion. Wow. Mr. Lincoln would have to rise from a seated
3: position. Okay, we can pause it there one, where he's talking yeah. about the illusion. Yeah, but... So, he was really involved, um, like a couple of the other nine, in developing these characters in the live-action rides uh, in Disney's parks. So, he did all of the designing for Pirates of the Caribbean, and then he was also brought in, uh, even after he retired, brought in to help design uh, things like Epcot and Disneyland Tokyo. Epcot's uh, just my as personal a consu- favorite. Yeah, as a consultant after he retired. So, he passed away or sorry he retired in 78 but he had a really long life after that uh lived until the year 2000 um so let's play one last clip of mark davies here it's not scary at all
6: for over 50 years
1: some not pretty famous back, characters man. have performed on the screen yeah. for walt disney studios <laughs> Of course, they couldn't have done it without a little behind-the-screen help from artists like Mark
0: Davis. Oh, Davis. Really, an animator is basically an actor, but instead of having his own face in front of the camera, you have um, uh, the character that you do, and the medium uh, is that of drawing and painting, and but it's with music, it's with acting, it's with dancing, it's it's all the arts combined in one in one uh, performance.
1: Mark Davis's skills weren't confined to animation. He also designed okay. many that's, that's kind of
2: the
3: three-dimensional characters. That's Mark Davis for you. <laughs> <was interesting> because...
2: <laughs> and now we have, the last but not least, Ollie Johnston. Who is known as the best damn cleanup guy you'll ever see.
0: Ollie! Oh my.
2: We'll get into what a cleanup guy is here in a little bit. Uh, he was born on Halloween in 1912. As I say, nice. it was the last and ninth hired in 1935. So the nine, I mean, it's an important stretch of 1927 to 1935. It's not like these guys were hired overnight. It was a gradual process of the, getting the key team together.
3: Eight years, almost a decade. That's a big range between yeah. Les Clark and Ali Johnson. And Ollie it's just Johnson. kind of,
2: I mean, a lot of 1934s, but as like I said, these guys improved over time. Ali uh, grew up. Uh, on the Stanford campus and around Palo Alto, his pr- father was a professor at Stanford. Um, from a young age, Ali—I mean, yeah—Ali was fascinated with uh, people's emotions and the faces they could make, and kind of like what their body language could do. Unfortunately, I didn't even know—I don't even know how he worked. He suffered with a uh, palsy, which would leave tremors in his hands. And oh my gosh! He suffered from that his entire life, and as an animator, that has to be. Just be awful. You know That's what I mean?
3: incredible that he was able to still be an animator.
2: Right. And his hands like, were his livelihood. Um, <coughs> as I said, uh, these guys improved over time. And I think, I wouldn't say Ali was a bad drawer. He would say he wasn't very good, but he probably was better than the average I would say. But um, he enjoyed it more than he had talent. And while studying at art school, or actually he was studying um, journalism at Stanford and taking art classes, art classes, none of his professors encouraged him to study art at a higher level, do anything with it beyond.
3: Oh, poor guy.
2: I know. It's, I mean, he enjoys it so much, but no one was just like, yeah, you should probably just do this as a hobby.
3: But none of his teachers were like, hey, you should meet Walt Disney. Yeah, so
2: many of these guys had teachers <laughs> push him, and Ollie Johnson wasn't one of them. Uh, on the Stanford campus, at the which we brought up earlier, he met his best friend for the rest of his life, Frank Thomas. And he said if not for meeting Frank Thomas, he would have got a crummy job in journalism or doing something else at the press. And um, after uh, actually eventually going on to completing art school, he was hired by Disney and didn't get assigned to be an in-betweener. He was hired as, as a cleanup artist, which this is where... Um, unfinished, I guess you could say, drawings or scenes would be handed down to him. And artists would kind of have outlines of where um, they wanted the characters to be and what would be happening. And he would finish all those out from, including finishing the color. So, yeah, he didn't have to do the uh, in betweeners or, you know, have to be followed around with, uh, with a fork by uh, Drake. And he eventually became. Uh, a very important man. As you mentioned many times, Fred Moore's assistant.
3: There is again, Fred, Fred
2: Moore. Moore. Um, as I said, Fred Moore was the man. Uh, he was the lead assistant to the dwarves in snow white. Ollie, along with Frank Thomas and Fred Moore were put in charge to animate Pinocchio himself as, a, as we mentioned, who was at milk call too.
3: hmm. Yeah.
2: And, um, Ali and his team uh, had already finished the design, and this is where we kind of came into – Milt thought he looked too puppety. Is that Mm -hmm. what you would say?
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: And Milt – I wouldn't say Milt undermined them, but uh, going back to his patience and just wanting to get things done, Milt undermined them and reanimated – and redid them. And they had to reanimate a bunch of key scenes with Pinocchio.
3: Classic Milt.
2: Classic Milt, just undermining as many people as possible. And um, Ali was famous for the fact that he animated and designed a lot of like teams. So if you kind of, all the way up until 1980, so you could say like Mowgli and Baloo, um, who are like, pretty much if there was a famous team in Disney, Ollie uh, had a lot to do with their designs as well as their personalities and how they would act with each other. Uh, He was a supervising animator for Bambi uh, because he was so great at animating emotions and all these animals, including Bambi, Thumper, every scene depended on what their emotions were conveying. There's not a lot of talking in Bambi. Um,
3: Less than you think. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And he was considered unfit for service when the war broke out because of his palsy. I mean, it's kind of sad and good. So he stayed uh, at the mm-hmm. studio and worked on shorts that was propaganda for the war effort. And <laughs> much like uh, Ward Kimball, Ali was a uh, avid locomotive collector. Um, his passion for these, uh, he collected a lot of miniatures, and his passion for these miniatures inspired Walt Disney to place a lot of train like raid, uh, train like rides at his theme parks. Um Ollie worked for the Walt Disney Company for 43 years. As I said, he wrote five books with his best friend Ollie. Uh and as we mentioned earlier, lent his voice for the last time, along with his best friend Frank and the Incredibles.
3: No and school like the old no school. No school
2: like the old school. And unfortunately, Ollie passed away in two thousand eight from natural causes. So a very good way to go. And we have a couple clips to play
4: here.
7: That's why they call me Thumper. <laughs>
4: Walter told me after I finished Snow White, doing the cleanups for Fred Moore on Snow White, that I could animate. So the first picture I got onto was a brave little tailor. And the first scenes I got were all crowd scenes. But you'd have thought that I was working on the, the best known characters in the world, and that each one of these characters had a personality that you couldn't <laughs> believe. And I just really poured myself into it. And, of course, at first I made it move too much all over the screen while they're talking. But gradually I calmed it down with Freddie Moore's help. And uh, so it looks okay now, but it's nothing I'd write home about. <laughs> all these big break
1: came on Pinocchio. It
3: all right, we can, can pause it there, but it looks very awesome. Very modest it's guy. A, yeah, a Mickey Mouse short set in uh, medieval times that he was showing there. It looks super and, clean. Uh, I mean, yeah, all of them did have their own personality, too. Like, all of the characters look distinct. Uh, Mm -hmm. But, yeah, let's get another clip of him right here.
4: The uh, engine on a steam engine (laughs) is more human than any other type of engine. He's on a train. (laughs) It's all on the outside (laughs) where you can see it working and the sounds are more human. This panting and the wheezing and the steam exhausting and the smoke puffing. There's something about it that's romantic and fascinating.
1: A pencil and paper <laughs> with no life of their own came to life with the talent and emotions of Ali Johnston. Came to life as a bumbling pirate.
3: It, I'll tell the crew, and it's me.
1: As Alice in Wonderland.
3: Goodness!
1: As a less than aeronautical albatross. Mayday!
4: Mayday! Just because they're a bunch of mere pencil drawings going through these routines and giving these performances, uh, to me, that was real. And I think that that was the type of thing that really interested me because I like to watch people, and I was interested in in how they moved and how they acted, and and I was interested in their emotions. That's what Walt wanted. He wanted the the emotions, the heart and soul of his pictures were the emotions.
2: Broke your yeah so ollie was the last guy and definitely as i said he put his own stamp on uh on animation at disney
3: so that's the nine we have les clark the first eric larson the guy who did the recruiting uh woolly reitherman the guy who took over after walt passed away frank thomas the sweetest man who ever lived <laughs> ward kimball uh the genius who never grew up Milt Call, uh, the guy you don't want to call your boss, <laughs> uh, John Lounsbury, the quiet one, Mark Davies, uh, the renaissance man who designed a lot of the rides, and Ollie Johnson, the uh, guy who overcame a physical disability. What what takeaways do you have from learning about the Nine?
2: I think what makes the Nine so cool is they really, a lot of them were starting at ground zero, and Each of them had their own special talent. Each of them kind of just made a mastery of those talents. And all nine of them, including Milt, to a degree, worked incredibly well with one another. So I think that's why, I mean, a lot of these projects are so cohesive. They may not have been working together at all times, but if you put two or three of them in a room, there's instantly going to be just magic there. So I think that all these guys, with art training or not, were just geniuses.
3: Yeah, and a lot of them just caught a lucky break, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. they just happened to know a guy who worked at Disney, or someone told them to apply to Disney. It's not like any of these guys grew up wanting to work for Disney and finally got an interview and did it. It was just was happenstance. Right, so. and
2: this, I think it was cool, too, as they ended up at the premier animation studio to this day.
3: <laughs> so that's it. That's episode two of Disney History Lessons. And, um, uh...
2: As always, do uh, you want to go ahead and end it here? Do you have anything to add?
3: No, I just say, just remember, it all started.
2: With a mouse. Thank you so much for listening to Please Stand Clear of the Doors.
0: Please stand clear of the doors.
4: All who come
1: to this happy place, Welcome.
0: por favor manténganse alejado de las puertas